EIS, CIOSP4, Oasis Plus, Ascend, the alphabet soup of contracts on the horizon will keep vendors busy over the next six months. The General Services Administration and others are pushing forward to set up and otherwise nurture these multi-billion dollar government-wide vehicles. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller has some new detail about where many of these contracts seem to be heading. Jason, the new year started fiscally, sort of, I mean, under a continuing resolution, but nevertheless, it's an optimistic market, seems to be busier than ever. Let's start with EIS, the uh, big enterprise infrastructure solutions project from GSA that has been kind of slow getting off the ground. You're right, Tom. It has been slow. And in fact, it's been such a challenge for a lot of agencies to really not just award their contracts, which most of them have by now, but actually to start transitioning from the old networks contract to the EIS contract. And what GSA did was gave agencies until September 30th to sign up or sign the MOU to take advantage of the continuity of services contract, which lets them use networks and some of the other WITS contracts and and so on and so forth for another year. And uh, we reported this back in early September that there's about 116 agencies who potentially would sign the MOU. I just got new data from GSA just this week and found out that 82 agencies actually signed those memorandums of understanding. Now, what GSA says was just because you sign the MOU doesn't mean you can slow down your transition pace. You still must press hard to get into EIS, but it does give them, I'll say, a little bit of breathing room, which is really important, Tom. And for those agencies that did not sign the MOU by September 30th, what are the consequences for them? They have to get it done by uh, as soon as possible. They had some big deadlines that were in September to get them done. But what GSA says is by November 2022, it will prepare a preliminary revision to what they call the Networks Authorized User List and share with those contracts, like, again, Networks, WITS3, Local Services Contracts. And what this list will mean will inform the contractors like Verizon, like AT&T, like Mattel, like CenturyLink and the others, that agencies will not be authorized to use the continuity of service period, and all services must be disconnected no later than May 31st, 2023. Now, that November 2022 notice also will allow time for agencies and their contractors to explore options, discuss the best path forward, and GSA will issue that final network authorized user list by May 1st, 2023. This idea of of getting to EIS by May 31st is actually a really big deal because if you don't, you will or could get disconnected. And, And I think what GSA is trying to avoid and really what agencies are trying to avoid is not have a gap in that service. Tom, interesting enough, I'm going to go back to those 82 that did sign the MOU. It broke down this way, 20 of the CFO Act agencies... 11 of what we call large or medium agencies, and 51 small agencies, which is a little surprising because I thought they would have the easier path to EIS. Yeah, you would think they'd be faster on their feet because they don't have all this encumbrance of the CIO of the supernumerary agency. All right, and there's a lot of other GSA efforts going on. Alliant 3, Oasis Plus, Ascend. Will those come to fruition anytime soon? <laughs> they are all in the works, if you will. And, and, and to GSA's credit, I mean, there's a lot going on a, across the agency. I actually caught up with Laura Stanton, who is the Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Information Technology Category in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. She offered a little bit of insights around some of those hot topic contracts that you mentioned. In the first quarter of FY23, we are looking forward to getting that Alliant 3 draft RFP out on the street. And I will ask people to, to take a hard look at that, give us the feedback. And so we're going to be keeping it open long enough so that people really have a chance to do that. That's why it came out first quarter. Is there any updates you can provide just on either Oasis Plus or some of the other uh, uh, GWACs that are coming out? People are obviously very excited about them all. 
Well, that's good to hear. I'm excited that they're that they're happy to see those coming out. I will say that Polaris, we have the second two pools on the street, so the service disabled veteran owned small business pool is open as well as the hub zone pool. So please take a look at that. I'll also mention um, you didn't ask about it yet, Jason, but the ascend the cloud blanket purchase agreement that we've been talking about. We're looking at second quarter FY23. So. Uh, calendar 2023, where we'll be seeing a draft RFQ for that. Again, Laura Stanton, the Assistant Commissioner of the Office of IT Category and GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, talking about some of those big procurements that are coming up. Uh, the other thing they mentioned, and this was at a recent uh, event around STARS 3, they've already had $1.8 billion in task orders, so a very popular contract. You heard her mention Polaris earlier. STARS 3 for 8A companies is doing a really uh, great job. And then, of course, there, there's a whole big push from GSA around automation. Let's automate things within the Federal Acquisition Service to make it easier, e-offers, e-mods, and the like. So there's a lot going on across the, the GSA and, and a, lot of folks, w- w- a lot of things folks are paying attention to. All right. And GSA is not the only one that offers GWACs that have been popular over the decades. There's also the National Institutes of Health. Their NITAC unit is trying to get CIOSP4, that is following CIOSP1, 2, and 3, <laughs> uh, into the marketplace. What is the latest there? Tom, I've heard from multiple industry sources that NIH in the last couple of weeks have let the folks know who did not make make it to the next round of evaluations that they have missed the cut. And I know that there are some folks who are quite upset about missing the cut because this is one of those major government-wide acquisition it's contracts. Got to be on type got, of thing. Right. You got to be on. So uh, let's let's watch out for the protests. protests. <laughs> but I, I think uh, CIOS before NIH got something like around five to 600 proposals. So a lot of folks who, who are bidding on it. And they still are trying to aim for awards by early November. So a couple more weeks for final awards. We'll see if that actually happens or it gets pushed back because A, a protest, or B, just because these things take a long time. But again, a very popular contract, one that, that's out there. And then, Tom, I'll just offer one other one that, that folks are, are paying attention to, which is the first Source 3 contract from the Homeland Security Department. This is a small business only, uh, roughly a, a $10 billion ceiling for IT products and associated services with those products. DHS had delayed it, delayed it, delayed it. And in fact, the final proposals were, were delayed four or five different times. The most recent one, they put out there and said, it's been delayed. We'll tell you when the proposals are due. And then about a week later, they said, okay, they're due in November. So it was a very weird circumstance that all of a sudden they said, we'll tell you when they'll be due after delaying it three other times. But now we know we have that early November date that it is due by. And as far as we know, the fact that agencies are operating under a CR, which some people think could extend to the entire year, that would not impede these agencies from moving ahead and establishing these contracts? Correct, because this is not money that they need today. It's agencies will put money against it eventually. And what they're doing is, they're, we've heard this many times over our, our careers, Tom, where they're giving out those licenses to hunt, but you can't hunt until you have the money to buy the other things you need to go hunting with. But the budgets to operate and establish the contracts, that staffing, that's all from prior year anyway, so it doesn't constitute a new initiative that you could not do under a CR. Absolutely correct. And and now the CRs also will not delay the awards. Other things will delay awards, like challenges GSA is having with the UEI transition or protests that we may see with like CIOS before or potentially some of the other ones like Polaris potentially could could face a protest after awards. So I think that's part of it as well. But uh, these are, you know, GSA is really setting up for a busy fall, winter. And as you know, Tom, things will move right into spring with some new contracts and new excitement. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And check out all of his coverage of this at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, this, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.